Turtles all the way down, vaccine science and myth. In this episode, we're going to look at the vaccine approval process, the use and importance of clinical trials, specifically the randomised control trial, the control group and the placebo, and the implications for testing the safety and efficacy of vaccines. Turtles all the way down, vaccine science and myth. Part 1. Vaccine safety. Vaccine safety lies at the heart of the public debate on vaccines. Although prominent in many discussions, vaccine efficacy is only of secondary importance. The chief motivation driving vaccine awareness advocates is the conviction that vaccination causes serious health harms in some recipients, and that this grim truth is largely concealed from the public. Had vaccines been perceived as completely safe, like health authorities claim, the animated public debate about them would never have gained traction. A vaccine with side effects that are mild and transient, that only causes serious or permanent damage extremely rarely, the proverbial one in a million, is unlikely to make any parent climb a virtual soapbox and preach to the cyber masses, even if its efficacy is less than ideal. The public entities that promote vaccines, health authorities, physicians, researchers, medical societies and organisations, all echo a unified message. Vaccines have been tested more than any other medical intervention and are completely safe. This categorical claim, however, stands in stark contrast to the first-hand experience of thousands of parents, who insist that their children suffered serious vaccine-related health harms. With the exception of a very small number of cases compensated by the government, the health establishment's response to parental claims of vaccine injury is utter dismissal and complete denial. Parents are told they got it all wrong, that their child couldn't have been harmed by vaccination. Any temporal association between vaccine administration and subsequent deterioration in health It's merely an unfortunate coincidence. The safety of each vaccine, they are told, was thoroughly vetted before it received marketing approval and is constantly monitored thereafter. Science has spoken, and science must prevail. Any negative impressions about vaccines are false and should be discarded. Any misgivings should be put to rest. Vaccines are safe. Vaccines are effective. The medical establishment's claim that all vaccines are completely safe is based on activity in three distinct domains. A. Clinical trials every new vaccine must undergo before it is approved for general use. B. Computerised vaccine adverse event reporting systems that monitor post-marketing vaccine safety on an ongoing basis. And C. Ad hoc epidemiological population studies that explore various aspects of vaccine safety. All of these will be scrutinised in the chapters that follow. The first part of the book will thus explore the critical question of vaccine safety, examining in detail the institutional claims that vaccines are extremely safe and that their safety has been established by rock-solid science. Turtles all the way down. Vaccine clinical trials. 
According to a well-known story in the scientific community, an elderly woman approached a famous scientist shortly after he concluded his lecture on cosmology and the structure of the solar system. Your beautiful theory about the Earth being round and rotating around the Sun is very interesting, young man. Unfortunately, it's also very wrong. I have a better theory, the woman told him. And what would that theory be, madam? The scientist responded. Well, what you call planet Earth is not round at all. Actually, it's kind of a large flat disc that rests on the shoulders of four giant elephants. And what do these four elephants stand on? The scientist inquired. They stand on the back of a giant turtle, the elderly woman answered. And what does that turtle stand on? The scientist asked with an inquisitive grin. On another, bigger turtle. And what does the second turtle stand on? Well, my dear man, said the elderly woman with a victorious smile, it's turtles all the way down. Even today, approximately 150 years after it first appeared, the story of the scientist, the elderly woman and the turtles remains quite popular in scientific circles. Its appeal appears to be due not only to the paradoxical punchline, but also to the way it portrays the relationship between scientists and laypeople. On the one hand, the wise scientist, rational and calm, and on the other, the simple-minded elderly woman confusing scientific knowledge and reality with myth. By emphasising the wide intellectual chasm between expert and layperson, this amusing anecdote reinforces scientists' deep-seated expectation that science be unanimously recognised as the arbiter of objective truth. Standing on their high pedestal, scientists, at least in their own eyes, are both worthy and capable of making final judgments on matters of public interest related to their expertise. This paternalistic tendency is evident in long-standing attempts by scientific and medical entities to portray the public conversation on vaccines as a lopsided dispute. On one side of the debate, we are told, stand doctors and researchers who draw their moral authority from years of academic training and work experience and whose arguments are backed by solid scientific evidence and validated by the medical establishment worldwide. On the other side, they tell us, stand a multitude of parents and activists who lack formal training, follow charlatans and quack doctors, and feed on fake news spread through social media. Yet, as will become clear in the following pages, the surprising truth which becomes self-evident when one devotes enough time and energy to researching vaccines, is that the roles are reversed. The elderly woman, the parents in this case, anchors her claims on bedrock science and displays a deep understanding of scientific methodology, while the medical establishment bases its position on turtles all the way down. Vaccine safety lies at the heart of the long-lasting and intense clash between those that support universal vaccination and those that oppose it. Health authorities' argument that vaccines are safe is based first and foremost on the presumption that each new vaccine undergoes a meticulous process of testing and approval. 
This process includes a series of clinical trials which purportedly utilize the most advanced scientific tools and techniques available and adhere to the highest safety standards. Once a new vaccine successfully passes these hurdles, it is considered safe by all relevant medical bodies. This chapter then examines the methodology used for testing vaccine safety as part of their pre-licensing approval process. Are new vaccines really rigorously scrutinised as the public is routinely promised, in keeping with an uncompromising commitment to the highest possible safety standards? Not only is the answer a flat no, by the end of this chapter you will learn the inconceivable secret the medical establishment has concealed from the public eye for decades. Clinical trials of vaccines are rigged to hide their true and high rate of side effects, which means the medical establishment's long-standing claim that vaccines are safe has no scientific merit. It sounds improbable, doesn't it? Impossible to believe. By the time you finish hearing this chapter, you will know it's true. Before we explore the methods employed by medical authorities to conceal vaccines' inadequate safety testing, we must familiarise ourselves with their pre-licensing approval process and its principal tool, the randomised controlled trial. Armed with this knowledge, we can then peel off one by one the protective layers that enfold the hidden, abhorrent and nearly unbelievable truth. The vaccine approval process Medical biologics, such as vaccines, undergo a lengthy and tedious approval process, replete with bureaucratic forms, documents and reviews. The process is determined by the authorising body, most commonly the US Food and Drug Administration, FDA, or the European Medicines Agency, EMA, and includes, in addition to endless paperwork, a requirement to conduct a series of clinical trials that demonstrate the effectiveness and safety of the product submitted for approval. This required series of clinical trials is divided into three phases, with each phase commencing only when and if the preceding phase has been successfully concluded. If the product does not prove safe or effective in any one of the phases, it will not win the coveted approval. Consequently, its development is likely to terminate, and the usually considerable funds invested in it will go down the drain. The first hurdle a new vaccine must leap is the preclinical phase, in which the product goes through a multitude of laboratory and animal experiments. The next step in the series is a phase one clinical trial, in which a small trial group, typically dozens of subjects, is given the new vaccine in order to determine how the human body responds to it. The underlying assumption is that, despite its success in animal experiments, during the preclinical phase, the vaccine could still prove to be harmful to humans. Therefore, in this stage, researchers attempt to identify particularly salient or severe side effects, such as severe allergic reactions, disability, early symptoms of a chronic problem, severe illness, or death. Due to the limited number of subjects, the Phase 1 trial cannot provide a complete picture of the extent and variety of side effects, adverse events, that could potentially be caused by the vaccine. If the vaccine successfully passes phase 1, the next experimental phase, the phase 2 clinical trial, is performed on a larger group, typically several hundred people, and the vaccine's effectiveness is evaluated in its designated population. For example, 
adults over 65 or diabetic patients under 18. This stage is also when the effects of varying the vaccine's dosage and delivery timing on efficacy and safety are examined. However, the absence of a control group, see the randomised controlled trial section below, and the relatively small number of subjects in Phase 2 trials preclude the attainment of definitive or final answers regarding the vaccine's efficacy and safety. Those await the next testing phase. Phase 3 clinical trials are conducted in several thousand subjects, sometimes even tens of thousands. These trials are designed to assess and validate the vaccine's effectiveness, to compare the new treatment with existing treatments, if any, and to collect information that will allow the vaccine to be used safely. This is the final experimental phase before the approval for commercial use, and it is of paramount importance in determining the efficacy and safety of the experimental vaccine. Phase 3 results will be published in the manufacturer's package insert and will serve as key evidence for the vaccine's safety and efficacy for years to come. Subjects in a Phase 3 trial are randomly divided into one of two groups. The trial group, which receives the test vaccine over a specified period of time, and the control group, which receives a placebo, a dummy, or some other compound. Throughout the study period, researchers monitor trial participants' health and collect information that will be used to evaluate the vaccine's efficacy and safety. The large quantity of subjects, as well as their separation into trial and control groups, affords a deeper probe into the vaccine's safety and its potential side effects, including those that occur relatively infrequently, i.e. one case in hundreds or thousands of subjects. Successful completion of a Phase 3 trial paves the way for the long-awaited approval for commercial production and marketing of the new vaccine. However, even after the vaccine has been in general use for a while, additional trials are sometimes called for. These post-marketing trials may be required to investigate unexpected adverse events reported after licensing or negative effects that have emerged in a specific population segment. This type of trial is called a Phase 4 clinical trial. As mentioned, after the vaccine successfully passes Phase 3 trials, the doors open for commercial use. However, for new vaccines, receiving approval from the authorising body is not sufficient. The product must also receive the approval of the authority responsible for distribution of vaccines. In the US, the FDA is in charge of licensing new vaccines, while the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, is responsible for making recommendations for their actual use including who should receive them, their ages and health status, the timing and number of doses to be received, and which vaccines can be given concurrently. The final step in the long process of marketing a new vaccine is its integration into the national vaccine programs of the US and other countries around the globe. Adding a vaccine to the American schedule recommended by the CDC instantly guarantees sales of millions of units per year in the US alone, thus assuring its manufacturer a handsome return on its initial investment. The Randomised Controlled Trial, RCT. In a simple vaccine clinical trial, one without a control group, as is the case for trials in phases 1 and 2, researchers face an inherent difficulty in determining whether a specific condition reported during the trial period is actually caused by the experimental compound or not. 
If a trial subject experiences a severe and immediate phenomenon following the receipt of the test vaccine, such as fainting or cardiac arrest, it could be reasonably assumed that the recently consumed vaccine was the culprit. When the side effect is less pronounced or appears days or weeks following vaccine administration, however, the researcher's decision is less obvious. For example, if the subject's temperature rises to 103 degrees, less than 48 hours after administration of the test vaccine, the researchers do not have enough information to decide whether this is a true side effect or merely an unfortunate coincidence. One option is to have every participant who experiences a health-related condition during the trial undergo a series of in-depth medical examinations in order to uncover possible links to the experimental vaccine. This strategy is not feasible or economical, if only because the vaccine is new and its specific effect on the human body is virtually unknown. Consequently, such an investigation could prove lengthy, costly and unlikely to yield conclusive results. A better option is to conduct an enhanced clinical trial, a controlled randomised and blinded trial, also known as a randomised controlled trial, RCT. In an RCT, subjects are divided into two groups, the trial group receiving the test compound and a control group receiving a dummy or existing compound whose efficacy and safety profile is well known. Subjects are randomly assigned to the two groups prior to the start of the trial to ensure that the groups are virtually alike in every relevant characteristic age, gender, area of residence, demographic status and so on. The term blinded or blinding means that the trial subjects do not know which group they are in and thus do not know whether they receive the test or dummy compound. In a double-blind trial, the researchers also do not know which subjects belong to which group. Thus, prior knowledge of which compound a participant received is not likely to influence either subjects or researchers and skew the results of the trial. In a non-blinded trial, subjects who receive the test compound rather than the dummy one may complain more about side effects since they expect them to occur. Similarly, a researcher who knows a particular subject belongs to the control group also knows that any reported side effects are not due to the vaccine and may inadvertently, subconsciously, underreport medical conditions occurring during the trial period. Only when the trial is over, after all the relevant information has been collected, is the specific compound administered to each of the study subjects revealed, and the researchers, with the complete data in hand, can begin the post-clinical data analysis. When it comes to pre-licensure testing of drugs and vaccines and other medical products, RCTs are widely considered the industry's gold standard. The random distribution of subjects to trial and control groups, as well as the minimisation of potential biases through the use of double-blinding, facilitates a reliable and meaningful comparison of trial and control group data. As an example, in a vaccine trial in which the control group is receiving a dummy compound, one can measure the level of antibodies produced in trial group subjects and compare it to that of the control group, thus getting a measure of vaccine efficacy. Similarly, a researcher could compare the incidence of adverse events following the vaccination in the two groups, thus getting an estimation of vaccine safety. The larger the number of trial participants, and the better the researchers adhere to RCT standard practices, the more reliable and comprehensive the trial results will be. Due to the high quality and reliability of RCTs, 
They are the method designated by regulatory agencies and accepted by the pharmaceutical industry for evaluating efficacy and safety of vaccines in phase 3 clinical trials. The control group in a clinical trial. As we've seen, the use of a control group in a clinical trial allows researchers to examine the therapeutic effect of the compound, efficacy, and the rate of adverse events it causes, safety, by comparing outcomes in the trial group with those of the control group. This comparative statistical analysis, then, will be influenced by the nature of the compound the researchers give to the control group. As a general rule, when deciding upon the type of compound given to the control group in an RCT, there are two options. For a trial of a completely new drug or vaccine, i.e. one which does not have an approved equivalent, the control group should receive an inert compound, placebo, that does not affect the parameters measured in the trial. However, if a proven treatment already exists, it may be unethical to prevent control group participants from receiving it. For example, in trials of new cancer drugs, it's considered unethical to prevent the control group subjects from receiving an existing drug for their illness. In this scenario, then, the control group would receive the current approved treatment. This practice is also the norm for vaccines, even though vaccines are used preventatively, not treatment for an existing condition, and are given to healthy individuals. If we apply the above guidelines to the clinical trials for the two generations of the Prevnar vaccine, then the original Prevnar, a new vaccine that had no therapeutic alternative at the time it was developed, should have been tested in an RCT in which the control group received an inert injection as a placebo. In the trials of Prevnar 13, the next generation vaccine, the control group should have received the original Prevnar vaccine, assuming that it would be unethical to deprive that group subjects of the current Prevnar vaccine's protection, whose efficacy is already proven. So how do researchers determine the incidence of adverse events associated with the new compound being tested in a controlled clinical trial? by comparing the rate of adverse events observed in the trial group to that of the control group. For example, if in a new vaccine's trial group of 1,000 infants, there were 20 cases of high fever, and in the control group, which has the same number of subjects, there were only 10 such cases registered, the results would imply the risk of high fever in the vaccinated is twice as high as in the unvaccinated. In absolute terms, the data shows that the vaccine increases the risk of high fever from 1 in every 100 infants to 1 in 50. When the control group subjects are given a placebo, an inert substance not known to cause high fever, it is assumed that the incidence of high fever recorded for the group represents the background rate, or baseline rate, of the phenomenon. In other words, the background rate is the number of subjects who would experience high fever naturally regardless of any trial intervention. In our example above, we would assume that 1 in 100 control group subjects developed high fever due to random causes, unrelated to the trial. Since the trial group would likely experience a similar background rate of high fever, 1 in 100, any significant deviation from this level should be attributed to the experimental vaccine. It follows, then, that an RCT in which the control group receives an inert placebo is designed to answer the critical question of how many adverse events does the new vaccine cause? Of course, we should keep in mind that the trial results are no more than a good estimation. If or when 
the vaccine is released to the market, the actual reported adverse event rate might deviate significantly from that observed in the clinical trial. Still, the results of the RCTs are the best estimate of safety available to science during the vaccine approval process, and in many cases, throughout its lifetime. In a trial in which the control group receives a different vaccine, as in the trial of Prevnar 13 versus Prevnar, its predecessor, the results obtained are always relative, answering the question, how many more, or less, adverse events does the new vaccine cause compared to the current vaccine? For example, if, out of a 1,000 subjects, 24 cases of high fever were observed in the trial group, while 20 such cases were reported in the control group, the new vaccine would appear to increase the odds of high fever by 20%, relative to the current vaccine. That's an important piece of information, as it reveals how the new generation vaccine's safety fares against that of its predecessor. However, it is impossible to calculate from a trial such as this one the absolute rate of adverse events caused by the experimental vaccine. That is, the rate of adverse events from vaccinating compared to not vaccinating. The absolute rate could not be calculated because the control group received a compound, the current vaccine, which is not inert, neutral, but rather has side effects of its own. In the above example, 24 cases of high fever were observed in recipients of the new vaccine and 20 cases in the current vaccine recipients. But how many cases would have been reported in trial subjects given a true placebo? This trial cannot answer that question. Therefore, the absolute rate of adverse events caused by the new vaccine cannot be calculated from trial data. The new vaccine could be said to cause 24 cases of high fever per 1,000 subjects, but this number would not represent a reliable estimate as it does not take into account the background rate of the phenomenon, which was not measured in the trial. In order to determine the true rate of adverse events of a new generation vaccine, a three-arm trial must be conducted, combining the two methods described above. In this kind of trial, subjects would be randomly allocated into three groups, one trial and two controls. The trial group would receive the new generation vaccine. The first control group would receive the current vaccine. And the second control group would receive an inert placebo. This trial design is considered to be of excellent quality as it measures both the absolute rate of adverse events, capturing the new vaccine to the placebo, and the relative rate, comparing the new vaccine to the current vaccine. From a public health perspective, the three-arm trial answers two important questions. How many adverse events does the new vaccine cause when compared to not vaccinating? And how many adverse events does the new vaccine cause when compared to the existing vaccine? Continuing with our Prevnar example, if the placebo-receiving group reported, say, 8 high fever cases per 1,000 subjects, then the study would indicate that the new vaccine, which, as we recall, had 24 cases of high fever per 1,000 subjects, increased the risk of high fever by a factor of 3, or, put differently, caused 16 more cases per 1,000 subjects, compared 
to not vaccinating. Another scenario in which a three-arm trial would be appropriate is re-establishing the safety of a legacy vaccine that was originally tested many years ago. The environment into which today's infants are born may differ significantly in crucial health-related aspects from the environment in which a first-generation vaccine was tested decades ago. For example, the current measles, mumps, rubella, varicella, MMRV vaccine, ProQuad, is the grandchild of the original MMR vaccine, which was tested in the late 1960s. Back then, the vaccine schedule consisted of only the diphtheria pertussis tetanus, DPT, and polio vaccines, with the first dose administered at age two months. If ProQuad were clinically tested against the original MMR and proved to have a similar safety profile, could we assume it's safe just because its grandparent vaccine was deemed safe 50 years ago? MMR vaccines are typically administered in the second year of life, after most of the infant vaccine schedule has already been delivered. If, hypothetically, the MMR's risk of harmful side effects were related to the load of previously administered vaccines, then we could not automatically accept the present safety of the original MMR. Remember that the MMR was first tested when the vaccine schedule consisted of only two other vaccines. If it were tested today, with many more vaccines on the schedule, some of which are given to pregnant mothers, others to newborns and infants at one month of age, would it still be proven safe? And the changing vaccine programme is just one aspect of the environment that may affect the safety of a given vaccine. Other factors, such as chemical exposure, changing diets, air pollution, radiation, could also play a role. Therefore, a clinical trial comparing ProQuad to MMR alone is deficient, as it would rely on the presumed safety of a vaccine, MMR, that might no longer be safe. Once more, a third group receiving a placebo is the proper solution to the problem. To summarise, in a clinical trial of an entirely new vaccine, the control group should receive a placebo so that the absolute rate of the vaccine's adverse events can be determined. This design does not pose an ethical problem, since the vaccine has no existing alternative. In a trial of a new generation vaccine, one control group should receive the current vaccine and another should receive a placebo, a three-arm trial. External control group. Another important point to consider is that an RCT control group cannot be replaced with data from another trial or any other externally calculated background rate. In other words, it is not scientifically valid to draw conclusions by comparing the observed rate of any phenomenon in a randomised controlled trial to the rate reported in another trial or to a rate observed in the general population. For example, if in a particular vaccine trial the reported incidence of sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS or crib death, in the trial group were 0.5%, 1 in 200, researchers could not then compare this rate to the background rate of the phenomenon in the population, let's say 0.8%, 
thus determining that the vaccine lowered the risk of SIDS. This is because trial participants comprise a subgroup which could possess specific characteristics, known or unknown, which are not representative of the entire population. This could potentially yield results that are not comparable to rates in the general population. For example, the proportion of infants participating in a trial whose parents smoke may be much lower than the background rate in the entire population, skewing the incidence of crib death in trial participants in a downward direction. Of course, skewing in the opposite direction is equally possible. Similarly, there is little scientific merit in comparing results from different clinical trials. For example, no significant insights could be derived from comparing the results of a Prevnar 13 trial carried out in infants from the New York area in 2010 with those of a Prevnar trial conducted in Philadelphia in 2005. This is due to the randomization principle of the randomized controlled trial, which requires that the trial participants be randomly divided between the trial group and the control group. Obviously, groups whose members were selected at different times and places would not satisfy this requirement. In the above examples, any differences in trial results could be entirely due to the dissimilarities between the groups, such as different socioeconomic status, environmental exposures or behavioural characteristics. The principle described above is well known to the pharmaceutical industry and it appears in numerous vaccine manufacturers' leaflets. For example, the package insert for GlaxoSmithKline, GSK, a hepatitis A vaccine, called Haverix, reads, Because clinical trials are conducted under widely varying conditions, adverse reaction rates observed in the clinical trials of a vaccine cannot be directly compared to rates in the clinical trials of another vaccine. And may not reflect the rates observed in practice. Clinical trials in children. Throughout most of the 20th century, the prevailing opinion in the world of medicine was that due to the relative fragility of children compared to adults, they should be protected from the perils of medical research. The result was a distinct lack of scientific knowledge about the effects of medical interventions, such as medication, on children. Administering medication to children, therefore, was largely a wide-ranging experiment conducted on the public. Circumstances began to change in 1977, when the American Academy of Pediatrics, the AAP, published new guidelines regulating the participation of children in clinical trials. In the new guidelines, the AAP said that drugs and vaccines should be tested on the population for which they are intended, in this case children, and that this requirement is not only ethical, but essential to their health as well. Over the following decades, various international medical organisations have formulated ethical rules governing the participation of children in clinical trials of drugs and vaccines. According to these rules, children may only be included in experiments intended to achieve an important scientific or public health objective directly related to the health and well-being of children. Children should not participate in studies that do not promote such goals, such as studies designed merely to confirm the results of other studies, or studies designed to advance scientific knowledge that does not concern children. 
In addition, the Medical Code of Ethics states that all parties involved in a trial must carefully weigh the potential benefit to child participants against the potential dangers involved. If the study's participants cannot be expected to benefit from the given intervention, then the intervention's inherent risk must be minimal, especially if the subject has not consented to participate in the trial, as is the case with infants. For example, if children assigned to control group of a drug trial were to receive a dummy medication, placebo, and a blood test, then both the medication and the blood draw must present no more than minimal risk. Also, the potential benefit must be substantial enough to justify the intervention's risk. For example, in a trial of a children's cough syrup, the risk associated with the new drug should be relatively low, as the potential benefit would be relatively low, while the potential benefit in a trial of a child cancer medication would be significantly higher. Thus, the risk posed by the drug could be proportionately higher as well. A more lenient approach holds that even if a trial procedure has no expected benefit, a minor increase over minimal risk is allowed if the experiment has the potential for gaining knowledge about the subject's disorder that is considered to be of vital importance. However, even with this approach, the risk associated with the intervention must not exceed the risk a healthy child would face in everyday life and should not cause permanent or irreparable damage. In any case, there must be prior knowledge of the level of risk inherent in the procedure. If the risk is unknown, it cannot be determined to be a minor increase over minimal risk. It's important to note that the above discussion holds equally true for both the trial and control groups of an experiment. Now that we're familiar with the different clinical phases of the vaccine approval process, the purpose of control groups in randomised controlled trials, and the ethical limitations imposed on children's participation in medical research, we can better examine the deliberately flawed procedure the industry uses to conduct vaccine clinical trials. A problem and a solution. Let's take a moment to examine a hypothetical scenario. A major pharmaceutical company has developed a new drug against a particular medical problem. Following its preliminary trials, the company realises that the drug is associated with a relatively high incidence of serious side effects that may negatively affect its chances to win FDA approval. Let's suppose that since the company spent hundreds of millions of dollars developing the drug and the target market segment is worth billions of dollars in sales each year, the company decides to move forward with the licensing process and start a phase 3 clinical trial. Given all of the above, what are the company's options, legal and illegal, for ensuring that the trial demonstrates a positive safety profile, thus clearing the way for the drug's approval? One option is to artificially lower the incidence of adverse events reported in the trial group, the group receiving the new drug, by withholding or modifying data for specific cases. The difficulty with this technique is that for the duration of the trial, because of the enforced double blinding, researchers don't know which subjects belong to which trial group. Thus, 
one cannot suppress or dilute reports for a specific group, the trial group in this case, while leaving those of the other intact. Randomly suppressing reports would not likely accomplish the desired effect as the ratio of adverse events in each of the two groups would probably not change much. Another theoretical option would be to modify the results following the conclusion of the clinical stage of the trial, at which point the blinding is removed and the data becomes fully available to the researchers. The difficulty with this approach is that falsifying trial data is a criminal offence, which can lead to grave consequences for the company and the researchers themselves, making this an unattractive option. Another option would be to use various statistical techniques to build a false safety profile for the drug being tested. The difficulty with this approach is that the RCT study design greatly reduces researchers' ability to affect the results since they gain access to the full data set at a time when the data can no longer be altered. With limited ability to control the data, it can be quite difficult to eliminate undesired signals by statistical manipulation while at the same time successfully covering one's tracks. The last option available to the company wishing to hide their product's undesirable side effects is to design a trial in which the reported rate of adverse events in the control group would likely be very similar to that of the trial group. As described previously, the RCT's control group represents the baseline rate to which the trial group is compared. A similar proportion between the two groups would indicate that the adverse events reported in the trial group were the result of background noise and not caused by the experimental drug. This technique has three distinct advantages. It's 100% legal. It's very effective. And as it turns out, it has the full approval of licensing authorities around the world. Fake placebo. It's virtually impossible to state the bottom line of the analysis presented above mildly. So here goes. Vaccine trials in general and childhood vaccine trials specifically, are purposely designed to obscure the true incidence of adverse events of the vaccine being tested. How do they do this? By using a two-step scheme. First, a new vaccine, one which does not have a predecessor, is always tested in a Phase 3 RCT in which the control group receives another vaccine, or a compound very similar to the experimental vaccine. A new paediatric vaccine is never tested during its formal approval process against a neutral solution, placebo. Comparing a trial group to a control group that was given a compound that is likely to cause a similar rate of adverse events facilitates the formation of a false safety profile. The rate of adverse events of the tested vaccine is said to be similar to the background rate. Hence, it is considered safe. The researchers and the vaccine manufacturer they work for seem to forget that the compound they administered to the control group is a bioactive substance, carrying its own risks and side effects, and hardly represents the baseline or background rate that is essential to an RCT for a new vaccine. Thus, 
The vaccine is approved and added to national vaccine programs throughout the world. Then, when the next generation vaccine comes along, its pre-licensing clinical trials will always compare the new vaccine to the current vaccine and never to a placebo. Thus, all parties involved ensure that the true rate of vaccine adverse events is never discovered for either the original or upgraded vaccine. And that rate is never shared with the public or even with the medical world. The practice of giving a different vaccine to the control group in an RCT of an entirely new vaccine and calling it placebo is a deliberate misrepresentation of the term. As explained previously, a placebo is a compound or procedure that does not affect the parameters measured in the trial. When testing the efficacy of a new vaccine, researchers measure the level of disease antibodies in both study groups, so the substance given to the control group must not affect that antibody level, or the comparison becomes meaningless. For example, in a hypothetical new hepatitis C vaccine trial, it would not make scientific sense to inject the control group subjects with a compound that could increase or decrease the subject's hepatitis C antibodies. Doing so would preclude a valid assessment of the effect of the vaccine on the antibody level, as the substance taken by the controls could have distorted the comparison. The above analysis holds true for safety testing as well. If the compound given to the control group has its own significant side effects, it cannot be regarded as a true placebo. If the rates of adverse events observed in the trial and control groups appear similar, is it because the experimental vaccine is safe, or because the control compound is just as unsafe as the vaccine? It would be impossible to know. Giving the control group an active substance in an RCT intended to test safety would be a bad design decision. Yet, this is exactly how new vaccine phase 3 trials are performed. Instead of a placebo, the control group receives a different vaccine, which is certain to cause its own adverse events and can in no way be deemed a neutral substance. This practice of administering a different vaccine to the control group in a new vaccine trial has no bearing on efficacy testing. It's highly likely that the control vaccine, which usually targets a different disease, would have no effect on the antibody level of the disease targeted by the test vaccine. Thus, using our hepatitis C example, if the control group subjects in the vaccine trial were given the Prevnar vaccine, no change in their hepatitis C antibody level would be expected. Thus, the true efficacy of the test vaccine could be determined. But this lack of effect is not the case when it comes to safety. Because the Prevnar vaccine has its own side effects, it cannot be considered neutral in this context. Therefore, the true rate of adverse events for the experimental hepatitis C vaccine cannot be determined by comparing it to the rate in the group that received Prevnar, since the controls did not receive a neutral compound. This deliberate distortion of the placebo concept in clinical trials of new vaccines is so prevalent that researchers and vaccine package inserts frequently refer to the bioactive compound given to a control group as placebo, even when it's clear it's another vaccine or a similar bioactive compound, which in itself is not safety neutral. 
falsely using the term placebo allows researchers to conclude that the new compound was proven safe because its rate of adverse events was similar to that of placebo, even though the substance the control group received was decidedly not a placebo. For example, in one of the DTaP vaccine trials, the rate of hospital admissions in the trial group was almost 1 in every 22 subjects. The researchers did not consider this statistic alarming, however, because in the control groups that received different DTP vaccines, the hospitalisation rate was similar. Was such a high hospitalisation rate in trial participants unrelated to the vaccines used, or were they the main culprit? Only the use of a true placebo control group could answer that question. No logical explanation can be found for the ubiquitous practice of administering bioactive compounds to control groups in trials of new vaccines, other than a desire to conceal the true rate of adverse events of the vaccine. Testing a new vaccine against a placebo in an RCT is the simplest, safest, cheapest and most reliable option. Saline, sterilised salt water, for example, is a safe, reliable, widely available and inexpensive compound, certainly when compared to a vaccine. Because it does not cause significant adverse events, nor does it produce disease-specific antibodies, it provides a reliable baseline for both safety and efficacy testing, and is therefore ideal for control group usage. Calculation of the true rate of adverse events of the test vaccine becomes straightforward and simple. Despite its clear benefits as a placebo, vaccine makers prefer not to use saline in vaccine trials. The reason for this should be obvious by now. In the next episode, we're going to take a closer look at how vaccines on the schedule were actually tested before getting marketing approval from the regulator.